Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Francesca Telese from UC San Diego and Jessica Zhu from Cold Spring Harbor on the show. This time we are doing things a little bit different since we have two guests on the show. Please let me briefly introduce both of you to our audience. Uh, Francesca, you got your PhD from the University of Naples, Federico II in Italy in 2007. You then moved on to the University of California to do your postdoc. After your postdoc, you stayed there and to become assistant project scientist and currently you are associate professor. Jessica, you did your PhD with Francesca from 2017 until 2023. And this is why both of you are in this episode together and you are currently a computational postdoctoral fellow Simons, at the Simons Center for Quantitative Biology at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Sure, this is Francesca Teresa, and um, I became interested in um, biology probably when I was in middle school and um, one of the professors at school uh, showed us a book on uh, the structure of DNA and I borrowed that book for the summer reading and that really turned my interest in um, this you know, fascinating molecule that decides who we are. Um, and that started, I would say, my career in biology. And then I um, did a uh, PhD in neuroscience uh, in Italy uh, at the University of Naples, um, where I studied, um, I was more interested in uh, Alzheimer's disease and how um, different protein complexes uh, were implicated in um, the neurobiology of Alzheimer's disease. And that's where um, my graduate work um, led to an initial discovery of uh, some transcriptional mechanisms that were implicated in uh, Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I wanted to learn more advanced methods to study transcription. And that's where I looked at different you know, pioneering labs that were working on uh, gene expression regulation. And that's where I uh, reached out to um, Michael Jeff Rosenfeld um, in at the University of San Diego was pioneering a lot of studies on uh, transcriptional regulation. Although it, his lab was not really working in neuroscience, but um, uh, I was lucky enough to be offered a postdoctoral position to do exactly what I wanted, uh, learning a lot of advanced um, methods to study uh, gene transcription. And so I moved across the pond and uh, I moved to San Diego to do my postdoc. Um, and then uh, after that, I actually opened my lab uh, at UCSD and I'm now an associate professor at the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, where I keep working on gene regulation um, and uh, mostly in the context of new, the neurobiology of addiction. 
Yeah, and we will talk about uh, the exact science that you're doing there uh, in a minute. But uh, let's uh, let's hear it from Jessica. Yeah. Um. Hi. Uh. So I guess like I've always been exposed to biology because that's the field that both of my parents work in. But um, actually, when I was younger, I didn't really want to do science. Um, and when I went to college, my parents also encouraged me to do something besides science, something different from them. Um, and so I started college as a business major, actually. And I did that for about a year. But then I kind of felt like um, like my brain wasn't working hard enough. I guess I missed doing like th working with numbers and doing science and things like that. So then I like started looking into changing my major after my first year in my bachelor's. And so so um, I ended up switching my degree to biomedical engineering at the end of my second year of college. Um, and, you know, I continue to take courses there. But um, I think I realized that I specifically liked working with numbers and um, doing the math. And so I decided to look into computational biology. Um, and so um, I was able to join a lab that did some cancer research. It was a new lab um, at my college. The professor had just started in January and I contacted him in February. And so I started doing some very simple computational analyses of cancer genomics data. Um, then I also had the opportunity uh, to do a summer undergraduate research program in Boston. Um, that was the summer before my senior year of college. And there they really kind of like encouraged you to, you know, think about applying for PhD programs. They taught you a lot about what it takes to apply to PhD programs. And I think getting my first experience just doing full-time research, like not, you know, also having to do classes too, but just, you know, every day I wake up, I go to the lab, I work all day, and then I come home and I was, you know, living in a dorm with other students in the program who were also doing full-time research. I think that was a really cool experience and I really liked being in that environment. And so when I got back to college, I decided to apply for PhD programs in computational biology and bioinformatics. And that's how I ended up at UCSD doing my PhD. And um, I actually joined a new lab again. Um, I joined Dr. Graham McVicker's lab. I guess I enjoyed working in that small environment with like a new professor and young professors. And um During my second year, I applied to a Fulbright in Berlin and I got it. So during my third year, I was kind of working on my research project over in Berlin as a visiting scientist. Um, and the project there focused on analyzing data from a single cell CRISPR regulatory screen. And so through that, I got some experience working with single cell data. And so when this grant that um, my professor, uh, Dr. McVicker and um, Francesca um, applied for came through and they wanted to put someone on the project, uh, Graham thought of me because uh, I had experience working with single-cell data, and the whole point of this project was to generate these novel single-cell data sets and to analyze them. And so that's how I got put into contact with Francesca um, and also um, Dr. Abraham Palmer, who was also um, one of the co-authors on this project. And um, that was actually right before the pandemic started. So when the pandemic started, I had to suddenly come back to America, and then this project kind of became my main focus from there on out for most of the rest of my PhD. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, what what work you were doing together? We were we are coming to uh, during this episode, but uh, let's come to the science part of this episode that centers around the molecular underpinnings of human addiction. Um, Francesca, let's start in 2015. Um, there, I think your work on epigenetics in the brain started. Um, the epigenetic mechanisms linking changes in neural transcriptional programs to behavioral plasticity remain largely unknown. Um, in your first paper that was published then in or 
in this paper I was referring to uh, that was published in 2015, you identified the epigenetic signature of the neuronal enhancers required for transcriptional regulation of synaptic plasticity. Um, can you talk about the study and also how you ended up in California? You just shed a little bit light on to this um, after your PhD in Italy. Yes, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned before, um, right when I was uh, ready to start uh, a postdoctoral project, I was looking for um, learning and, you know, on my skills uh, in more advanced methods uh, to study uh, transcription. And particularly at that moment, I was interested in learning and memory. And so more of Uh, the mechanism that regulate just our normal behavior. And um, you know, the brain is incredibly complex and gene expression play a very uh, key role, both in the development and functioning. And um, I wanted to continue studying gene expression regulation to gain insight in how um, not only um, the brain develops, but um, mostly in how the brain responds to new experiences. Um, and that's what happens when we learn something new, we uh, experience something new and we retain that information. How that information is encoded is what I wanted to understand. And I knew it was encoded in our uh, genome and in our in, in the interplay between the genome and the environment. And that's where the epigenetics mechanisms play a big role. And that's where I moved to California to work in the lab of uh, Michael Jack Rosenfeld, who was using these new methods like chip sequencing to study how different proteins and different histones um, uh, different proteins bind to specific region of the genome and control the expression of different genes um, and how uh, histone modification um, also affect the way genes are uh, turned off or turned on. And um, as I mentioned before, the lab wasn't working really on this in this field, uh, but that was the fun part. I was given this opportunity to do what I wanted and to be free to explore this new avenue of research. So at first, um, I had to set up the entire, uh, you know, operation of getting um of studying the brain, uh, studying, and I was doing that by both looking at uh, neurons, which are, you know, the building block of our brain and how they respond to stimulus that would uh, sort of reflect the way our brain responds to new uh, environment. Every time we respond to something new, um, there are some specific brain, uh, brain region and neurons in, a, in specific brain regions, such as the hippocampus, that will fire and respond uh, to these new uh, experiences. And I was modeling that in a dish. And so I was giving, uh, I identified a specific molecule, relin, um, which uh, regulates um, how um, these neurons uh, respond to a new uh, experience. And so I was using these um, uh, methods to understand what genes are uh, going on and off. And this study um, showed us that there are specific uh, region of the genome, where, which are called enhancers and are um, particularly um, 
sequence uh, that control which gene turn on and off in, in specific cell types. And um, that was fascinating for me that we were getting this um, uh, very um, uh, detailed understanding of um, not only uh, the signaling molecules, but also the specific DNA uh, regions of the genome that before were considered, you know, junk DNA or uh, regions that known code for genomes, for genes, for proteins, and so they don't have a very clear function, uh, but we were learning that they actually are central uh, to regulate um, uh, the way we learn and the way we retain information for a long time. Uh, so that project really looked at how we uh, encode new memories and how we retain those memories for a long time. And that was regulated by Rillian. And what kind of marks uh, does this influence? So is, are these the classical um, enhancer marks or were there different ones? Um, at that time, I looked um, at, in that specific project, we looked at uh, just um, uh, known enhancer marks, such as H3K27 acetyl, for example, and other known uh, markers of uh, activity, um, uh, um, of active transcription. But actually, in a, a parallel project that I worked on, um, uh, always focused on mechanism of uh, learning and memory, we studied another molecule, uh, a histone demethylase, LSD1, um, which um, we found that was a very fun project where we found that um, a splicing um, um, isoform of this enzyme, which changes only eight amino acids, of this uh, protein, um, which we call neuronal LSD1, because this isoform was only expressed in neurons uh, and, and at the inclusion of an exon that encoded for eight amino acids. But those eight amino acids, they landed right in the enzymatic pocket of this um, uh, site of this enzyme. And what we find is was very fascinating, this, um, this change in... Um, the enzymatic uh, uh, site of LSD1 changed completely uh, the substrate specificity of this enzyme. And so in that case, we looked at new marks that were associated with learning and memory, specifically LSD1 demethylase removed methyl groups from histone 3 or histone 9. But now we discovered that a new substrate, which was histone 4 um, lysine 20, was a new substrate of this enzyme and was involved in um, the way the neurons again respond to um, firing and the way the, way the the brain responds to new experience. And we discovered that uh, this histone uh, H4K20 um, um, monomethyl um, decorated the gene body and was controlling a specific step of transcript transcription, which was elongation. Um, so that was another project uh, where I uh, worked on epigenetic mechanisms. Now, this seems to be a very unique feature of this protein, right? I mean, I, I've I've heard that there are splice variants of proteins, but that this specific variant of splicing changes like the enzymatic activity and 
to a complete different uh, histone modification is, is seems to be very unique and and and, and very interesting, right? Yes, yes, it was very uh, interesting, but we were um, uh, very uh, um, uh, relieved that other researchers at the same time, they found they were studying uh, this um, neuronal uh, isoform, and they also found that this switch in the enzymatic activity was really important in neurogenesis, in neuronal development. So, um Uh, although very unique, it is not uncommon that splice variants regulate the function of many important neuronal proteins. So I think there's a lot more to discover in, in this space mm -hmm. and uh, looking at how uh, splice variants uh, change the function of proteins. You then started your own lab and started to look into drug addiction in a broad sense. Um, first, you looked at uh, long-term effects of cannabis use. However, the factors that contribute to the long-term detrimental effects of cannabis use are not so well understood. Uh, you then studied how relin, you, the protein you just uh, mentioned, deficiency influences the behavior of mice exposed to cannabis during their adult life. So what did you find there? Yeah, um When I started my own lab, of course, it was not a coincidence that I uh, was working on um, on what you just described. And um, so coming from, um, you know, my um, starting from my work on learning and memory and reading, um, I wanted to uh, understand how not only this signaling pathway regulates normal behavior, but how potentially disruption of this pathway can uh, influence um, pathology. And so I was looking at a model, a system or a disease model that would um, uh, be uh, good to explore this hypothesis that disruption of reading signaling and consequence disruption of memory can contribute to disorders. And um, the mouse model of um, you know, chronic exposure uh, of cannabis in adolescent brain um, was the right answer for me because um, cannabis, as many other psychoactive drugs, are very strong modifiers of behavior. Uh, and that's what drew me towards um, studying neurobiology of addiction besides being such an important public health concern, uh, an issue right now in the United States and worldwide. But I was fascinated by how psycho psychoactive drugs are such strong modifiers of behavior. And cannabis specifically and its effect on the adolescent brain um, can modify learning and memory, which was my major behavioral domain, let's put it that way. And um When we looked at how, uh, you know, reeling uh, signaling, so more of an, uh, an internal um, signaling interact with an external environmental factor such as cannabis exposure, uh, we learned first um, that there is an interaction between these two signaling, which probably means that reeling interacts with our endocannabinoid uh, signaling because we have an entire um, you know, signaling uh, pathway uh, and an entire system of molecules, including receptors and enzymes that are able to produce and respond 
to cannabinoid like molecules, which are our endocannabinoids. Um, and, so, and, and endocannabinoid signaling is absolutely important during development, uh, such as relin. So that's where my hypothesis came uh, about of how these two signaling pathways that are important for learning and memory and development could interact. And I used cannabis, um, which is very widespread use by teens. And so uh, there's a lot of concern on how not only, a, uh, you know, abuse of these drugs and the new high potency um, strains of cannabis and synthetic cannabinoids, how they affect adolescents. And so in our first work, we looked mostly at the behavior because although there were a lot of studies, um, none of those previous studies have looked at how uh, cannabis changes behavior during adolescence where we manipulated the uh, signaling, really in signaling pathway. And we found that first, um, as others had shown, um, chronic um, exposure to cannabis can uh, reduce uh, memory performance and that in the animals, uh, mice that don't express reeling or express lower level of this protein, some of the behavioral features were uh, further compromised. Uh, and then we looked more closely also at what are the gene expression changes that are induced by chronic use of cannabis during adolescence and they might underlie these long-term um, detrimental effects on brain functions. And uh, we did another project using, um, you know, a transcriptomic uh, profiling uh, in different brain regions of the brain. And we found that many uh, gene co-expression networks were uh, correlated with uh, THC, which is this... Um, psychoactive component of, of cannabis and were also correlated with the reading genotype, suggesting again that these two pathway overlaps and um, uh, particularly we found um, that VTA, the a specific region of the brain where um, there are the dopaminergic neurons that respond to most uh, uh, a, a psychoactive drug. Uh, VTA was uh, particularly affected, um, but also other uh, brain region of the brain reward system, uh, suggesting again that um, this psychoactive drug, they, ma they can manipulate the way we perceive reward and they could in you know, lead not only to the memory uh, deficits that, and social interaction deficits that we had uh, observed before with behavioral studies, but they also suggested that um, this chronic adolescent exposure to THC can affect the brain reward system. And so right now in the lab, we're kind of looking more at that side of the story. Where are the um, pathways that are affected by cannabis during adolescence uh, and they can uh, lead to cannabis use disorders? Um, you also checked those um, gene expression networks in different sexes, right? In males and females. Um, what are the differences and why are there differences? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, we are very interested in understanding sex differences. Um, and 
most of um, the previous literature um, in animal research, also not just in the field of addiction, uh, has mostly worked on males. Uh, and there's a lot of misconceptions um, because of this uh, type of uh, experimental design. There's a strong need to do more research using females um, because the biology of um sex differences can affect behavior and can affect, therefore, uh, the way male, uh, males and females respond to treatments in different pathological uh, conditions and therapeutic settings. And so uh, there's a lot of drugs that are designed based on studies that have only been done in males. And so that was one of the... Um, uh, motivations for us to look at um, sex differences in the way uh, male and female mice respond to chronic adolescent exposure to THC, because already epidemiological studies um, showed that there are um, sex differences in um, the way um, teenagers uh, respond to cannabis, and uh, there are there were already some evidence that females might be more sensitive. And we found some of those uh, um, same evidence in our animal studies, uh, where we found that um, some specific behaviors were more uh, heightened in females, such as risk-taking behaviors, um, and some other features were more uh, pronounced in males. Um, we still don't understand what are the molecular mechanisms driving those sex differences, and those are probably linked again to how the uh, endocannabinoid signaling um, behaves differently and in, in the two sexes, and mostly because endocannabinoid uh, system is so important during um, a sex um during um, sexual behavior uh, and um, also development of reproductive system. But we need to do more work mm -hmm. uh, to understand the uh, mechanism behind those sex differences. So next to THC and cannabis, you also investigated cocaine addiction. Um, so why did you also focus on cocaine addiction and what is the difference between cocaine, THC and both addictions? Yeah, um, so, you know, most drug, psychoactive drug and addictive um, uh, drugs share some, you know, basic mechanism of action. Um, for example, uh, cocaine or THC or opioids, um, they all share one common mechanism, which is increasing the level of dopamine in the brain after a person is exposed and consumed the drug. Um, and that, you know, basic mechanism induces a series of downstream um, effects uh, uh, in the brain. And um, But at the same time, those drugs work differently because they bind to different receptors that are expressed in different parts of the brains or the body. And so it's fascinating um, 
how uh, trying to understand those commonalities and those differences. Um, the reason why we uh, focus on cannabis um, um, is one of the main reasons is because it's widespread use during specific um, critical periods of uh, development, such as adolescence. And so we use that system to study mostly the effect of uh, cannabis and drug of abuse on the adolescent brain. Uh, but cocaine is another, um, you know, a very uh, widely used drug and recently um, has been imp implicated in a concerning rise in overdose deaths. Um, and that's one motivation why we focus on uh, cocaine addiction, because uh, it's a, a very um, serious um, health issue right now and societal issue. Um, but again, we are finding some common mechanism between different types of addictions, but at the same time, we're interested in understanding what makes each drug affect the brain differently. So let's come to the work that you both have been involved together and let's uh, involve Jessica again, <laughs> uh, since you have been quiet for a while. Um, there you did single cell work where you generated an atlas of single nucleus gene expression and chromatin accessibility. So right in the ballpark of our epigenetics interest, um, could you maybe um, talk about this story and what this atlas helped you to find? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think Jessica mentioned before that um, uh, I was um, collaborating with Graham McPeaker, a, a graduate advisor. And for some time, Graham and I uh, were discussing about, um, you know, how to fill some critical knowledge gap in this field. Um, and there were several um you know, sort of um, uh, barriers that we found in the uh, current um, uh, literature and uh, in the field. One was that most studies um, in the addiction field, were, uh, especially looking at uh, gene expression changes in the brain, were using inbred strains of rats or mice. And so that was a um, a barrier that we wanted to overcome because using a, one specific genetic strain does not reflect what happens in the human population. And so um, there was one reason we partnered up with a Palmer and Olivier George who are using this outbreak population of rats that are genet genetically diverse and um, are closer to the human population. Uh, another barrier that we found was that most of the gene expression studies were focused or epigenetic studies were focused on bulk profiling. So we didn't have the cell type specificity that is so critical because as we know, the brain is extremely complex and heterogeneous and we wanted to, you know, um, delve into this cell type specificity um, uh, uh, in terms of how different cell types, neurons or glial cells respond to uh, exposure to drugs or contribute to susceptibility to drug addiction. And lastly, uh, most studies were um, using 
animal models um, uh, where the experimenter would administer the drug by injection. So it was a forced exposure. And again, that did not really reflect what happens in the human population when people decide to take the drug. And um, so to better model that motivational uh, aspect of um, uh, behavioral traits associated with addiction, uh, we partnered with Olivier George at UCSD, um, where they uh, developed these more uh, comprehensive um, protocols of um, um, self-administration of drugs in rats. So in this case, the rats were trained to self-administer drugs. So they would decide when to take the drug, how much drug they wanted. And we decided to look at what happens in the brain after a long abstinence, not just after acute exposure to drug. And that's because one of the features of addiction is the high rate of relapse. Even after a year of abstinence, some individual, not all, but some individual can relapse. And that's one of the critical problems to face when we need to try to understand how can we treat this devastating disorder. So, you, so, were basically, sorry, sorry, you were basically looking for permanent changes, right? So that they that really yes. last in the brain. Yes, changes that persist. And so we designed this project based on these limitations that we wanted to overcome. And of course, it was a challenging uh, project and we needed someone who was uh, able to take up this challenge and lead us in the right direction. That's when we recruited Jessica and she can tell you more on her contribution to this story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for me, it was very exciting to get a bunch of novel data that's like designed to answer the question at hand. Because actually up until this point in my PhD, you know, our lab was small and it was primarily um, a computational lab. We gen did not generate a lot of our own data. So a lot of times you're kind of like scavenging for data using like data from previously published studies and trying to repurpose it or reanalyze it. And sometimes you find that your data that you're working with is not sufficiently powered to answer the question that you're trying to study or, you know, you're like, oh, well, I wish it were like this. So it was really exciting to work with a group who was designing data specifically for the research question. And, and we also had a lot of it, you know, like single cell data is still relatively new. I mean, it's very popular, but it's quite expensive to generate. And there's technical challenges associated with both doing the experiments and analyzing the data that you don't get with traditional bulk sequencing. And so, you know, like it was kind of fun to um, get this data and then learn about this question. I'd also never really worked with neuroscience or learned about how animal models work and all the important nuances um, that come into play when you're working with like these behavioral animal models. I think Francesca talked a lot about how there are certain aspects of this project that were unique to our project that kind of like really like hone and refine the question that we're asking. For example, because we let the rats self-administer, that has different implications for the um, how we interpret the findings. And also because, um, you know, we studied long-term changes. We're not just looking for changes associated with addiction. We're looking for changes associated with addiction that can predispose um, an individual to relapse, which is, you know, one of the main obstacles in treating addiction. And now when it came to analyzing this data, um, as I mentioned with single cell, there are a lot of challenges um, because the data doesn't look quite the same 
same as uh, bulk sequencing data. Because with bulk sequencing, you're getting information about the expression of a gene from an entire tissue sample. Um, so you simply have more material to work with um, and to detect gene expression or these biological signals from. Um, when you work with single cell, you're individually profiling individual cells. And so, there, you know, a cell is very small, so there's simply going to be less biological material to analyze. So the data can be very noisy. So, you know, that required us to think carefully about, um, you know, how to analyze the data and also have every step. We had to be very rigorous with our quality control and think about, you know, what all the numbers mean and how we should take this into account when moving forward with the next step of the analysis. Um, so do you, so, sorry to interrupt, uh, do you get like a black and white picture then in single cell expression data? So either the gene is off or on, or do you also get like intermediate? So the gene is like 60% on? <laughs> uh, yeah, you actually, so you do still get like, individual reads like you do from a regular RNA-seq data experiment, you just have less. So there's going to be more like zero counts. There's going to be a lot of genes where the expression might not be detected because there simply weren't a lot of reads to capture during the RNA sequencing experiments. Um, so that's done. So it's not like um, going to be a binary um, vector. With ATAC sequencing, like I do think at least sometimes people will like binarize the data just because there the data tends to be even sparser when you're looking at single cell ATAC-seq compared to single cell RNA-seq. But, you know, we still treat it as count data. We still look at the discrete counts and then measure that. So we weren't working with like, you know, off or on metrics, um, you know, which, you know, gives us, I guess, more detail to work with when trying to interpret the data. Um, but yeah, because we had single cell data, we were then able to characterize the cells. Um, that does require um, a decent amount of manual labor. Um, I work closely with Francesca for that. She's the expert on the neuroscience part of the project. So, you know, after doing careful profiling of the expression of different genes in all of the cells and grouping the cells based on the similarity of their gene expression profiles, we were then able to say, like, basically use pre-existing knowledge of what cell types we expect to find in the amygdala and, you know, their, their known gene expression profiles, like what we already know about um, how these cell types tend to express. And through that, we were able to manually annotate um, this atlas of um, single cell RNA sequencing data that we had. Um, and interestingly, you know, we also sequenced, we also did single cell ATAC sequencing um, in the rat amygdala, but they weren't from the same rats for the most part. Um, and this so was So it was not a multiomics, uh, a true multiomics experiment because you didn't do the experiments from the same mice and the same cells, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there, we couldn't simply just like use the same cell type annotations. So we used a label transfer approach to basically um, map the label cell type labels from the RNA-seq to the ATAC sequencing data that we had. Um, that made it possible for us to therefore characterize the cell type populations present in our single cell ATAC sequencing data as well. Um, and then in all the downstream analysis, we were therefore able to uh, perform all of our analyses at the cell type specific level. So we could say like when we're looking for differential gene expression between, you know, cells that came from the rats that showed a high addiction index compared to the cells that came from the, or the nuclei, I should say, because we did single nucleus sequencing um, in the rats. Um, we were able to identify differences that were specific to individual cell types. Um, this could be interesting because some genes might 
only show differential expression between the high and low addiction index rats um, in like neuronal cells, but not glial cells. And in doing something like that, you can get a better understanding of the molecular basis of the disease. You know, you know, you can tell, you can not, you don't have to say it's just um, we identified this in the amygdala. We can say this is specifically coming from this particular cell type in the amygdala that can also help you gain a better, not just gain a better understanding of the disease, but also develop more targeted treatments for it. And what kind of differences were you able to find between like the acute cocaine uptake and then like the long range um, effects? So how much genes uh, were changed or, or how much cell types even were, were changed? Um, so one of the main findings in our paper is that we saw um, significant, we saw that um, among the genes that were significantly differentially expressed between high and low rats, the ones in the um, neuronal cell types mostly tended to be enriched for genes belonging to pathways related to um, cellular like metabolism. And um, based on this, we did several follow-up experiments, which maybe Francesca can talk about and like um, how that, the translational impact of that. Yeah, that was um, one of our um, major finding that um, oxidative phosphorylation pathways, which are related to how the cells produce and use energy, they were affected across cell type, mostly in neurons, but across different uh, subtype of cells. So that meant it was a strong signal. And um, that also um, suggested us that an altered metabolic state of the cells can be perhaps targeted uh, at, uh, by, for example, a pharmacological intervention to try and re-establish the normal functioning of uh, these neuronal cell types. And so what we did in uh, some of the following uh, experiment, follow-up experiment, we used um, a small molecule um, that inhibits a um, metabolic enzyme, which is called glyoxylase 1. Um, And this enzyme is involved in the clearance of um, methylglyoxal. Methylglyoxal is another metabolite that typically the cells try to get rid of because if it accumulates, can uh, cause senescence. But in the brain, some recent discoveries um, have uh, suggested that this metabolite can actually affect uh, neuronal transmission particularly GABAergic transmission, because uh, methylglyoxal can act as an um, agonist for the GABA-A receptor. And so this, you know, this knowledge uh, suggested us that perhaps if we affect the way uh, the cell um, metabolize uh, glucose and therefore glycolysis, we might affect directly GABAergic transmission, which is so important, especially in the amygdala, um, for the normal functioning of this brain region, but also has been implicated in addiction. So we use this mold molecule to manipulate the activity of the enzyme, which is responsible for the metabolism of this GABA agonist. And indeed, we showed not only the GABAergic transmission was altered 
between the rats that have high or low addiction index, but we could reverse uh, this um, enhanced GABAergic transmission by treating uh, slices of the amygdala with uh, these small molecules. And we also use this small molecule in vivo in, in the rats by injecting rats that were either more predisposed or less to become addicted um, with glo uh, the GLO-1 inhibitor. And we could also revert the relapse, the higher relapse that we can observe in rats that have taken a lot of drug and that have these high addiction indexes. Um, so in a way, um, our transcriptomic analysis give us a, a, a cellular snapshot of how the brain of rats that have high addiction index are um, compared to the low addiction index. And they showed us that altered metabolic um, um, pathways related to energy consumption are a strong hallmark of the cellular phenotype. But the cellular phenotype then affects not only neuronal transmission, in this case, GABAergic transmission, but they also affect consequentially behavior. So we were able to link uh, differences in gene expression all the way to behavior. Uh, but a question for us remained, which was, is this an effect of cocaine exposure or is this an effect uh, due to pre-existing genetic differences. And that's where Jessica did more analysis than maybe she can share to try to understand, you know, what, what are the underlying mechanisms um, that contribute either to predisposition to develop addiction or progression of addiction uh, due to drug consumption. Yeah. Uh um, so, you know, normally if someone wants to study um, genetic predisposition or genetic risk or something, you would do like um, a genome-wide association study where you would um, sequence, uh, where you would basically sequence a population of individuals that, you know, you kind of divide them into a case and control, and then basically look for associations between certain alleles and the trait that you're trying to study. So, you know, if we wanted to just, uh, study like a rat's genetic predisposition for addiction, we would have had to put a lot of rats through this protocol, sequence all of those, and then do an association study. And, you know, we simply didn't have that scale, that um, number of rats available. So that approach was out. We couldn't do any sort of genetic association study to see, you know, do the rats in our study have, you know, certain variants that put them at risk for being high addiction index or low addiction index. Um, our collaborator, Abe, um, he is working on doing kind of like this, these rat GWASs, but they just weren't ready yet at the time that, you know, we were doing this, we were publishing this paper. And so we had to come up with a workaround that, you know, would answer this question with the data that we had available. So what we did do was we tried to because um, we have, we do have the um, genetic profiles of all of the rats in our study. They are genetically diverse, and they were all fully sequenced. Um, and so, what we did is we had the observed gene expression, and we were curious how that would deviate from their expected gene expression based on their genetics. Um, so. Um, our collaborator, Abe, they did develop, um, they do have enough data to um, develop some predictive models of a rat's gene expression in certain tissues 
based on their genetic profiles, basically based on the alleles that they have present. So we leverage some of those models working with um, Daniel Monroe from Abe's lab. He's a postdoc. Um, and we basically imputed or predicted gene expression um, for all of the rats in our study based on their genetic profiles. And we compared these predicted gene expression values to the observed gene expression values. And um, what we found was that um, it was uh, reasonably consistent. Um, and this scaled as we increase like um, certain stringency metrics that um, uh, basically measure how well the predictive models perform. Um, and so what this tells us is that um, genetic influence does play a role in um, affecting the changes that we observe from our analysis. Um, if that makes sense. Definitely. Um, Francesca, you're looking like you want to add something. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I was saying that was uh, a very, um, you know, in a way, we expected that genetics plays a role, but that was probably one of the first time that there was evidence at the single cell level that some, we can uh, more confidently say that those gene expression differences are due to genetics. We were able to provide this evidence, which was important for us to say the sum of these long-term changes that we observed after cocaine self-administration, they might be due to genetic predisposition, to pre-existing differences. And that was important because, in a way, there's a lot of stigma around, you know, addiction. And it's important to remember that addiction is a, a just a, a, or like other complex psychiatric disorders where it's not just the choice of the person to become addicted, but it depends also on some genetic factors. Uh, and so that in a way, you know, is important uh, to remember that um, genetic factors can predispose some individual to um, be more motivated to be to consume drug and then even if they quit they might be more predisposed to relapse in specific situations so i think this um, study gave you a lot of material to do future work <laughs> so uh, imagine uh, you both are due to submitting a grant proposal tomorrow what would you write into that oh huh <laughs> At least grants submitted yesterday and a month ago. We've been thinking <laughs> about this uh, now for a while. And um, definitely we want to study more rats. Uh, as Jessica said, some of the um, you know limitation of our study in this context when we are trying to understand or disentangle the contribution of drug exposure versus genetics would benefit by having a larger cohort of animals. Um, and so that's, uh, and to use some, um, you know, predictive modeling uh, and um, like 
polygenic risk, risk score to understand better um, the individual vulnerability to addiction. So definitely um, this study um, inspired us to think more deeply on how can we study the genetics of addiction and how that gen how those genetic factors affect gene expression and chromatin accessibility. So that's more moving away from the pure epigenetics, but more to the primary segments of the DNA? That's one direction, but um, definitely we haven't talked about too much about the results or implication of the chromatin accessibility studies in our work. But from that uh, angle, we also learned a lot. There is a very profound difference in the let's call it epigenomic profiling or chromatin accessibility profiling that is very cell type specific. For example, we found that excitatory and inhibitory neurons of rats with a high addiction index versus low addiction index, they look completely different, if not opposite. In a way, the excitatory neurons showed way more side accessible, while the inhibitory neurons showed that a lot of sites were less accessible. And with the help of also another student from Grounds Lab and Jessica's work, uh, we found that specific transcription factors are enriched in those affected sites in a cell type-specific manner. Um, and that's one other next step, understanding how those transcription factors activity might affect the chromatin landscape of different cell types. And that's very challenging because while we can study gene expression and chromatin accessibility at the single cell level, studying transcription factor binding at the single cell level is still, um, you know, a very new um approach that is not yet very accessible, for example, like with the multi-young kids that you mentioned. Um, and so that's something we're looking into it as well. Yeah, I was just going to add on, like, you know, for that study, uh, what we were really looking for was actually enrichment of um, transcription factor motifs um, in the uh, regions of the chromatin that were differentially accessible between high addiction index rats and low addiction index rats. And we did this in a cell type specific manner. Um, now, the interesting thing about transcription factor motifs is that a lot of related transcription factors will recognize similar motifs. And there are so many of them in the database that um, um, the student that we were working with, um, Aaron Ho, he was um, a software engineer in Dr. Graham McVicker's lab, who's actually now applying for PhD programs. He helped a lot with this paper. Um, he grouped uh, transcription factors that had similar binding motifs into families, and then we were looking for enrichment of those common binding motifs. And so what we came up with was a hypothesis of um, binding motifs that are enriched in those differentially accessible regions. But we would need further experiments to confirm whether those transcription factors actually are um, binding in those differentially accessible regions or not. And so that's what Francesca was saying is difficult, right? Like we came up with these cell type specific hypotheses of transcription factor binding, but there isn't really the technology yet for like single cell chroma like chip 
chip sequencing, which was someone would typically do to study whether or not a protein is bound at a certain region in the DNA or not. Yeah, maybe the new methods, cut and take a cut and run, can help um, investigating this then in the future. But uh, Jessica, since you switched coast, right, you moved from the West Coast to the East Coast and uh, and are now in a different lab. Um, are you working on the same things or what are you going to investigate moving forward? Yeah, um, so I am actually working in a somewhat of a different area now. Um, I'm doing a postdoctoral research position at a Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in Dr. Peter Ku's lab. His lab focuses on developing machine learning methods for analyzing DNA sequence data and trying to understand its regulatory function. Um, I did this because I wanted to um, get more experience building and developing machine learning models and specifically deep learning models. And so that's what I'm working on right now, trying to... Um, work on developing interpretable machine learning models for genomic sequence data so that we not only are we able to like make predictions about um, the effects of a DNA sequence on um, biology, but also to get a better understanding of what these um, intricate deep learning models are learning, um, because that'll give us a better understanding of how to actually interpret the regulatory genome. Um, Something like that could also be interesting, though, if we wanted to try to like study some of these questions, like if you could train a machine learning model to um, actually predict transcription factor binding, like not just the presence of a motif, but like whether or not a transcription factor is binding in a region, that could be useful for, you know, filling this niche um, that we currently don't have the technology to answer. Okay. So for the last 57 minutes, we have been on a journey through your both scientific careers. <laughs> um, did we miss something important or would you like to add something? Definitely, I want to add that uh, although all these projects, you know, presented a lot of challenges, challenges, it was a lot of fun to work together uh, with a very um, uh, bright student, Jessica, but also a bigger group of collaborators. This was really a project where um, teamwork is the only solution to address big challenges because for example um you know we put together not on different expertise and different experimental models from the upper rug genetics to the self-administration studies uh to the computational modeling and to the profiling and sequencing single cell genomics methods that doing it in one lab is definitely possible, but it might take too long for a student to graduate on time or, um, you know, so it was definitely, a, a, the bright side of this was uh, um, having the opportunity to collaborate and interact uh, with scientists from different disciplines. Uh, and so I'm, I wanted to add that. Okay, so then thank you, Francesca and Jessica, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, it was really fun to talk about our paper with you. Hopefully people can learn a lot from this uh, podcast and it makes everything more accessible to people. Thank you. It was really fun as well uh, to spend our morning with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, 
So please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.